Welcome to the Listening Party podcast for April 24th, 2020. I'm your host, Rebecca Haas, the Director of Community Engagement for Pacific Opera. The Listening Party is a time when we get together with friends, share music and stories from the world of opera, music, and theatre. This week's episode is unusual in that it offers a glimpse into the creation of a new work, The Book of My Shames. My guests today will tell personal stories about their lives, how they experience art and creation, and the role music has played in their journeys. I will be speaking with creators Isaiah Bell and Sean Gist. If you're new to the podcast, I suggest you listen all the way through and then follow up with the Listening Party playlist by using the Spotify link provided on our webpage. If you want to dig deeper into their choices, you can read the liner notes that accompany each episode. So what has brought us here today to talk about the Book of My Shames? Well, let me set the scene for you. Before the arrival of COVID-19, Pacific Opera and Intrepid Theatre were looking forward to presenting a co-production of the Book of My Shames. This piece is part of Intrepid's Uno Fest and was to be performed at our venue, the Bauman Centre. I know I was excited that Pacific Opera was offering a work that is new and that boldly moves into pushing the boundaries of what opera might be. It mixes music and theatre, and the company was looking forward to engaging an audience with this story that speaks directly to the queer community. While we are sad that this public performance at the Bauman Centre could not take place due to the current restrictions around public gatherings, we are pleased to be able to continue to support this work through an online sharing, but there'll be more about that later. Now, why don't we start by meeting the artists? All right, who would like to go first? Isaiah, do you want to go first? Me? Okay. Uh, let me just, I'm just making sure I can access that mute button. And that's the unmute. All right, got it. Hello. Um, sure. I haven't done a lot of Zoom calls, so I'm still figuring out the, the technology. Um, so what, it's, it's a hi situation? Hi, I'm Isaiah, like this sort of thing? Okay. Hi, I'm Isaiah Bell. I'm a tenor. I'm a composer and a writer as well, and a nascent director. And... Uh, Sean and I are working together on The Book of My Shames, which is a solo show that we co-created. Hi, I'm Sean Guest. I'm an arts administrator, uh, queer artist, director, and uh, part-time uh, drag artist. And like Isaiah mentioned, we have co-created uh, The Book of My Shames, which is the solo show that we uh, are working on, but also um, not working on in person uh, during this pandemic. Have you ever wondered how a new show is created? Mozart was commissioned for his work usually, but that model is scarce these days. And if your main way of making a living is singing, as it is for Isaiah Bell, what would have to happen to take a leap of faith and create your own piece from the bottom up? I wondered how this whole project got started. Here's Sean Guest. I guess the first genesis of the show was actually this uh, like 16-minute um, piece that Isaiah had, had composed uh, and performed at one of Intrepid Theatre's uh, cabarets at Outstagers, our queer theatre festival um, that I curate. Um, and I was watching the, the piece from backstage and Robert Hollison was playing. Uh, and the, the, the piece was, was beautiful. And um, uh, Isaiah had tried to pull out of the show um, a few days before and said, oh no, I just, I just, I can't do this. And I said, no, you're going to, and it's going to be great. Uh, and I, so I was watching backstage and the audience was just, so captivated by this story and this piece that I, 
I sent Isaiah an email a couple days later and I just said, Hey, this was, this was incredible. Congratulations. Like, I'm so happy you did this and we were able to be, to share this work for the first time. And you know what? I really think that there's a show here. And if you ever, if you ever agree with me, um, I'd love to collaborate on it with you. Uh, let me know. Why did Isaiah try to pull out last minute? Here's Isaiah giving me the surprising backstory to this piece. Yeah, so this actually came out of another project. It's a bit of a complicated story, but this came out of another project that I was working on or had been working on for a few years with a mutual friend of ours, Joel Klein, who's a baritone slash tenor, a high baritone, and also an arts administrator and also a part-time drag artist. Uh, Joel has this alter ego, that his, uh, his drag persona, Maria Toilette, who he invented, he invented this, this character to sort of be able to explore all the areas of opera that he can't explore as a man. So he's, Maria Toilette's first outing, I think, was singing Glitter and Be Gay from Candide, you know, two octaves down or whatever, with an enormous, you know, two foot high Marie Antoinette wig. And uh, eventually, Joel discovered that there still wasn't anything in the repertoire that spoke to his experience. So he got me involved. We'd worked together as singers. He got me involved in creating this series of songs, sort of cabaret art songs, based on texts that he sourced himself from conversations that he would have and record with consent uh, with friends of his sort of over drinks, just about their intimate lives and their personal lives and their sex lives and love lives. All of them so far have been gay men talking about their experiences as gay men. Some of them are about their experiences, you know, coming out or being in the closet or it's their first experience of love or there's some, some of them are sex stories. Like it's really quite a range of things. Isaiah told me that he was working on these verbatim transcripts for the cabaret songs for Joel to perform as Marie Toilette. And then something surprising happened. I was in France a couple of years ago, well, four years ago, actually, and I had just finished the most recent song for this cycle. And, and uh, so my head was there. And I woke up one morning from a dream. Two minutes after I woke up, took my phone and recorded into my phone my memory of this experience based on this, this sort of sense memory, this, this feeling I was having in my body. Because, you know, when you wake up sometimes from a dream, you have, you're, still, you're, still, you're still in that world a little bit and it takes a little while to, so before that dissipated, I recorded myself speaking this, speaking this memory of this time into my phone and with very few changes that became the text for this song, which ended up being uh, sort of an 18 to 20 minute, 17 to 20 minute, depending on, depending on how many dramatic pauses we take, this thing that I did in the show. And so the reason that I, that I didn't want to do it was because when it came time to actually put it up in front of people, I had a moment of panic that, that no one was going to be interested in and people were going to think it was sort of this, this self-indulgent millennial thing about, you know, Oh, once I was sad and here's 20 minutes about that, you know? Yeah. What I, what I saw was, was the audience just, getting more and more caught up and, and um, you could, you could see them getting caught up, not just in the story, um, but in the music. Cause the music is so beautiful and, and Isaiah's voice and performance was so beautiful. And so 
raw. And um, I think also because this was in a cabaret, there was all sorts of pieces in the show. There was drag, there was dance. I think there was like a unicorn burlesque number. Like there, there was there was everything in the show, and this kind of this this longer operatic piece kind of closed the show and. Um, and just seeing people kind of ride the emotions of this like wild queer cabaret and then kind of landing on this this piece of truth and this piece of, of raw rawness and, and beauty, I think was where I where I watched the audience kind of fall into it and be like, oh, there there is actually something here. And I think that oftentimes um, opera doesn't actually get to share queer stories. And I think that's what I found really um really uh struck me the most is i was like this is not just a personal story but this is a really personal queer story and people are are caught up in it and that's when i was like there's more here like this is just one piece of what i think could be a full show the facts of the story are it's a story about me going on a trip in college with a group of people and sort of getting involved sort of semi romantically with like a with like an ostensibly straight guy and the sort of dynamic between us and, and, and what happened factually and then what happened sort of inside my head. And for me, this, this story is a story about, about shame specifically. It's about the shame of knowing that a situation is ridiculous, is wrong, is inappropriate, is also, you know, is damaging to, to me and still going through with it and not being able to sort of control myself feeling like like compelled by this by this need for love this this desire and and a sense of sort of existential loneliness and all this kind of stuff just grabbing onto whatever you can grab onto so that for me that's what the story was about taking it wasn't saying you know oh i had this traumatic experience where this person abused me or whatever or or took me for a ride it was like i knew what i was getting into and i couldn't stop myself and that's what the story's about but what surprised me and what and what really led to the way that we dealt with the show was that the people that responded to the show, no one seemed to respond in the way that I thought they would. And the, the reason that I wanted to pull out, no one seemed to respond saying, well, that's nothing to talk about. That's not worth everyone that I talked to said, everyone's had that experience. Everyone's had that experience of being on the, on the, the lower end of an unequal relationship because the show that we ended up creating fleshes out and follows the, the thread of someone whose own view of their own life is so skewed because every experience is sort of seen through the lens of, of shame and self-loathing and, and a sense of uh, inferiority. And uh, so, so that was the nut of what we built on was, was the, the disconnect between how I thought of my own story and how other people seem to view it. From its inception four years ago, the Book of My Shames has not yet settled into the final form. What both Isaiah and Sean spoke to me about is a very evolving process, which for many of you might seem terrifying and a crazy way to make your living. After all, most of us buy a ticket, assuming we are going to see a finished product when we go to the theatre. We assume that the creators have finished and they've gotten it right. That's what we pay to see. Certainly if we go to see Tosca, or La Nozze di Figaro, that's how every audience will enter the theatre. But this is not what happens in new work, and it's really truly exciting, and also terrifying for the creators. Doing this kind of work leaves them vulnerable over and over again. But there's no other way to continue to explore and discover than to keep putting yourself 
out there. They make it, they try it, they let it go, and they make it again. Here's Sean. I think that with this show, um, it's not just that we, we, we weren't just tweaking little things. It's like the show has changed dramatically in every incarnation, really, of the show. So we, we had the, the show was booked by Tapestry Opera in Toronto last summer as part of uh, Pride TO. So it was their, their Pride offering. Um, and what, so we knew that we had this deadline and we, know, we knew that we had to make the show for this deadline. And one thing that I really wanted us to do before we left Victoria, where we had been working on the show with the support of Pacific Opera Victoria, is I wanted us to have a showing. We really wanted to make sure that the show um, was, had a universal appeal, that it wasn't just that you could identify with the protagonist, even though the protagonist is telling a very personal story. We got some really great feedback. Um, and then we flew to Toronto the next day. And I get a, an email from Isaiah from the plane saying, hey girl, I rewrote the show. Here's a new draft. See you in rehearsal. Uh, like, let's, let's talk about this. So when we, went, when we landed in Toronto, uh, Isaiah went to work with a new collaborative pianist and uh, we were in a brand new space. So we had to restage the show to fit this new configuration and, and this, this kind of compact stage. But we also had a brand new show. The show that we did in Toronto was not the show that audiences in, this invited audience Victoria had seen six days prior uh, to opening in Toronto. So we weren't just we weren't just moving the whole show to Toronto. We were we were moving the show to Toronto and making a brand new show and bringing it to Tapestry for the performance. And and what we've done since is we've we've worked on the script and the music again. Isaiah's written new music for this new version, and the show is changing and evolving. And and what we've kind of done with this new version is we've really kind of fleshed out a few ideas to make it a bit more personal. We will be doing the show for three different audiences and everyone will have seen a different version of the show and not just like, oh, well, no, this new cast changed this song before they went to Broadway. Like these are, these are, these are completely different shows. I think that's really exciting. And we don't often get a chance to do that in opera where I think what this show offers is it's a solo piece. So Isaiah is both the composer and librettist and playwright and performer. So he's really able to kind of change things as he goes. And he is a master at learning new dialogue on the fly. Before the, uh, before the, the, the third show of, of three at Tapestry, I had stayed up all night. There was this one part that was really bugging me about the show and I'd stayed up all night just trying to figure out this one little corner. And then like for 30 minutes before the show, I was pacing around outside in the distillery district trying to learn all this dialogue and just get it so it was like second nature. And there was this terrifying moment in that show where for you know one second or whatever, which is like a, a light years in, in theater time, I just totally... It's a visual. Isaiah has put up his hands and looks wide-eyed at me. He blanked. He couldn't remember what to say next. As he says, it probably went by the audience in the blink of an eye. But a moment that in this story crystallizes that he's performing without a net. His show is a living, breathing entity. And every night in Toronto, it was a little bit different. I asked Isaiah, knowing that as an operatic performer, he will have a drive to get it right in performance. And how did he balance that off with what is a very personal story that is in process? The Book of My Shame sounds to me like a great balance of head and heart in creation. Why I feel that it's successful and people have responded to it positively 
is that we have managed to get in our collaboration to a place where, where we're where we're coming from an honest place and where everything isn't 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 rooted in analysis it's rooted in something honest and then it's it's shaped by analysis and so and so that's what is so so my brain sometimes only kicks in in that in that parasitic way when suddenly i i realize i'm about to be exposed but i think for this the process has been mostly mostly hard so I have a question for both of you. I'll let Sean answer first so Isaiah can stew about it. Um, <laughs> knowing that you've performed it a few times now, uh, but if you could be a fly on a wall after the next evolution, because we're not going to actually see it, of course, at this point because of the pandemic. So it's, we're still waiting to see what the next evolution looks like. What is the compliment you would most love to hear in the lobby that would make you feel like the piece had turned out the way you wanted it to? Oh, this is really hard. Um... I, I think for me, the, the biggest compliment would be because the show is half singing and half text. Isaiah talks as much as he sings, which is, I think, not what opera fans are perhaps expecting. Um, so I think for me, I think the biggest compliment would be in the lobby is for someone, someone to recognize um, that opera and theater, this blend and this hybrid that we've created is successful. That opera fans are still engrossed in the story, even though Isaiah talks as much as he sings and that theater fans are perhaps um, feeling the same way that they're, they're really caught up in both the storytelling and also in the music. Um, and I think that's why our collaboration is so special to me is that we're really kind of bringing both of these pieces, this like strong opera background and the strong theater background. And we're really kind of like jamming them together in, in this show. It's a mashup. <laughs> It's a total mashup and we, we call it a mashup. I don't know if people like that term, but that's what we've been calling it. Isaiah, what would you love to hear in the lobby as a fly on the wall? Well, you know, for me, part of the reason that I sort of justify being able to do a show that's so much about my personal life and my childhood and, and you know, my, my fears and insecurities is that we say in the show quite specifically, and for me, this is the heart of doing this kind of art that's personal memoir stuff, we say, this is about us, this, this thing that I'm about to do. I'm about to do a show about me, but this, but this thing is about us. We all, most of us, many of us, all of us in some way feel these feelings, I believe. And so I'm, I'm talking about all of our experience. It's just that I'm the piece of us that I know the best. I, I don't want to think like, wow, I know a lot about Isaiah now. I don't want that to be the, the thing that comes out of the show. I asked Sean, What's been lighting up his artistic spirit in this process? There's something also that I just love about how we're like bringing all, all the elements at our disposal, all of these theatrical elements and all of these musical and, and um, operatic elements that, that we're really kind of, we're playing with everything we possibly can in this show. There's like um, a, a memory play. There's some really beautiful music that Isaiah has composed. There's some existing music. Um, that really shows Isaiah off for what he does as a as a performer, um, and there's there's a little bit of um, of audience participation, which I think is not often um, seen by opera audiences, but also not often seen in the way that we're doing it in in this show. So I really I I love being able to kind of pull on all of these tools and just kind of keep finessing and 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 playing this little Rubik's cube of of how we can make all of these things happen um, in in the show, and it's. That's not often what you get to do because often you're, you're directing a piece that's written or, or you're kind of 
collaborating with a group of people to, to tell um, a, a story that you're kind of creating or, or verbatim based on, on interviews, but this is such a personal, personal piece. And I think that's what, I'm, what I most value as an artist. So cool, because I love the excitement about creating basically a new form and sort of knocking down walls and expectations. So you sound a little bit like a kid in a candy store, which is very fun. <laughs> Uh, but I also get a sense of there's a deep personal connection between the two of you in terms of the passion around the project, which is really lovely. Yeah, I think I'm also really um, passionate about sharing queer stories. Um, and I think that we don't often get to see queer stories um, reflected like this in such a personal and profound way. Um, that is that is universal. And it's, it's, not, it's not drama therapy. It's not art therapy that... Um, this is a personal story, but it is universal. And we really are kind of playing with how that, how that speaks to people. Um, but I think it's not often that you actually see someone like this share parts of themselves in this way. Um, and to really dig into some of that queer history and some of these difficult pieces of the past. And that's um, what I, I kind of love about being able to share queer stories and that they speak not just to queer audiences, but to every audience. And that's what I think the show does so well. I don't think of myself as having any sort of latent internalized homophobia or, or any or any sort of discomfort about about gay identity or anything like that. But I think there was something for me about the sort of the banality of of the the story that I was responding to in the initial story that made me feel very exposed because this this story and, and I think that does come from from not having seen my story reflected in other gay stories, you know? So I thought, oh, this was just you being stupid, you being weak, you just being this, this sort, of, sort of desperate kind of pathetic gay guy who couldn't, you know, get a real boyfriend and, and this kind of thing. Just hearing other people respond with such compassion to that story and being able to offer compassion as my adult self to that, to that young person sort of retroactively and and then and then and then you know that act of compassion spreading out through anyone who who sees the show i think that's a very powerful thing and i and i i don't think of myself quite actually in contrast to you sean i don't i don't think of myself as a queer artist you know but your connection to to that element of our identities i think has made me see how how strong how strongly that viewpoint influences my my identity and I think that that's uh, some of us can fall into that into that trap of saying like oh no no no, no. I'm not I'm not a, I'm not a gay artist I'm not you know I'm, ju I'm, ju I'm just an artist who happens to be gay and I think that when you when you don't own up to that identity and see how much it, it affects your lens you you're not fully able to to express what you have to express for, for me as my when I identify as a queer artist uh, we're working on a very queer specific show um, a queer story uh, I mean we toured the show to Pride in Toronto. Um, uh, and what we've also done is every time that we've done the show, we've worked with a, a queer uh, collaborative pianist as well. So that it's really been, the, the whole team can kind of get behind that. At the, at the heart of the show is we're kind of trying to tell this very truthful personal queer story. And I think, I think for me and hopefully for the, the pianist too, that they can identify on some level um, with some parts of the show or, or what Isaiah's experience is. And I think that just melds the, the team together. And I think that comes through in the show. This part of our conversation has really stayed with me. The tension in how we define ourselves, see ourselves, 
and how this plays out in creative voice is really a crucial element of the arts right now. While this conversation has focused on queer identity, the same conversation is being held in Indigenous theatre communities and communities of colour and many more places. The stories we tell in our lived experience can't help but emerge in the work we create. But what I also really took away from this conversation is that that knowledge and that perspective we bring to what we create doesn't have to exclude an audience. Wherever we are from, how we see ourselves, how we identify, as Isaiah said really quite well, all of us feel these feelings. And art is one of the ways we can be reminded that whether we feel isolated, alone, rejected, embraced, loved, these are common experiences on our human journey. And art can really deepen and connect us to that story. I had emailed both my guests ahead of time to ask about creating the playlist. Now, usually the playlist comes out of our conversation, but we're discussing a new work and there isn't anything I can program from Spotify that comes from the Book of My Shames. So instead, I asked them to think about music that's impacted their lives and music that has meaning for them. From Scarlatti to Streisand, it turns out to be quite a playlist. Okay, so this one, so one of the pieces, well, there's a whole bunch, but one of them, uh, a while back I was... Uh putting together a playlist for um, This Is My Music on CBC. And there's this one particular uh, piano sonata by Scarlatti that I really love. And I used to have as my alarm on my phone because alarm, for me, the alarm on the phone, like it has to be something that you can stand to hear over and over again when you're at your most vulnerable, which is when you're half asleep. And it's something that's quite gentle, but will still wake you up. And, and so there's this one piece that I used to listen to over and over again. And I was trying to find, part of the This Is My Music thing is that um, Canadian content is preferred, you know, because it's on CBC. And, uh, and so I was trying to find a, a Canadian artist who had recorded this and I actually couldn't find one because I don't know if there is a Canadian artist who's recorded this because, you know, he wrote 555 sonatas or something like that. And so not everyone has been performed by a Canadian artist and recorded. And so I was just listening through a whole bunch of different recordings and I ended up coming back to over and over again, this one recording by Horowitz, you know, when he was, when he was late, quite late in his career. And there's just something different about it. You can just, and it's between the notes, kind of. You can tell that someone, it's, it's Sonata, I think it's 466. Uh, it's this, one of these incredibly beautiful sonatas and it's a totally different piece, even though the, it's not like one of these romantic pieces where it's all about the surge of the music and about how someone personally embodies their own drama in the music. It's, it's this very simple Baroque sort of counterpoint, twiddle, twiddle, twiddle sort of piece. And everyone's basically playing the same piece, but you can just tell there's something about where he is i don't know the the musicality that's coming from him just responding to 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 hearing the music as if it's happening in that moment for the first time it's really incredible as young artists what did you listen to and what inspired you sean you know i'm gonna out myself as just like a music theater queen here for a moment and um i i just loved listening to music theater whether it was classic whether it was you're listening to like Barbara saying don't rain on my parade which I think I have to add to the Spotify list because in rehearsal there's always a, there's moments often in the show where we're like Isaiah this is your this is your Barbara moment though but no you can't actually sing it no we no that's not right but like this is that moment and uh I mean I I was you should so say to people like what is a Barbara moment what makes a Barbara moment for the uninitiated well actually okay so don't rain on my parade has to be on this list because that's my thing too 
because this is for me this is a big moment for me and this is and it's it has to relate to the gay thing somehow because i mean i don't know if you you might have a different take on this sean but for me specifically don't rain on my parade was also specifically my song when i was you know a, a little gay boy in in little town bc uh there's something well just i mean you know just i've got to do what i've got to do and 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 you can't stop me don't try you know like that's like this, just this, I mean, there's a reason that she's a gay icon. Like there's, there's this, and there's this, there's this zest that she performs that piece with, which just this sort of like throwing caution to the wind. And, you know, in the movie, there's a big scene because it's from Funny Girl. There's a scene where she's like sort of on the front of a tugboat, you know, just like blasting out to sea, saying like, don't tell me not to fly. You know, I've got to. It's incredible. And I think there's something about, about what she, what Barbara does in that song is so iconic that it's like, you're, you're exactly right. It's all these things it's like, I know I have to do this and no one can stand in my way. Um, and I, I love that. And I think also growing up as like a young gay boy in like small town Saskatchewan for me was such a, a big piece, I think of that. But when I also look at other music, I mean, it's just, it's musical theater most. I mean, even some of like, I mean, Moulin Rouge as like was such a huge influence on me because you're, you're, Baz Luhrmann is taking all of these pieces and mashing them together and telling this story and it's visually sweeping, but also it's visually sweeping in the music and in the lyrics. And um, I mean, who didn't want to like climb that elephant with like Ewan McGregor and Nicole Kidman, right? Another thing that I would put on my playlist is Nina Simone. Well, really anything Nina Simone sings, but, but one of her things that where she sings just acapella, there's this incredible sense of of true vulnerability like in her voice you feel a tr you feel true vulnerability which is even to a level that we in opera can't project because because we well for one thing we're, we feel like we're sort of not allowed but also you can't you can't allow true vulnerability to sort of come up into your throat when you're singing opera because it will cut out your your actual sound production but it's incredible when the mic is right in front of her and she's singing just just a cappella. This, this, this really, this really fragile text about, about. Well, in in the particular song that images. I don't know if you know this song. Um, the text. It's actually totally heartbreaking. It was written by a poet in the twenties, and Nina, Nina set it to music, which is. Um, she does not know her beauty. She thinks her brown body has no glory. If she could stand naked under palm trees and see her image reflected in the river she would know but there are no palm trees in the street and dishwater gives back no images and it's just this idea about but you know that's not my story at all I'm not a woman of color you know and and in some ways I have you know I don't want to co-opt that narrative from my story but but the idea of someone who the idea of, of, of shining a light onto that lens is exactly what we've been talking about of saying like these are the reasons that my story is like this because because my because of of the way that that my story has been told to me you know and, and and i've taken that on and i tell that story so what are their aspirations for this show it's vulnerable it's personal it's universal it's a mashup of theater music text classical voice i wondered how are they defining success personally i would i would love for it to be a show that can that can continue to mutate and never has a final form. And that is shown in all kinds of settings, any, anywhere where people, I mean, I would do a fringe thing with it. It's, it's not necessarily, I mean, because it's a one person show, it could fit into that, into that idiom, but I would love to take it to 
not, I would love to expand it past classical music only settings, which we were already doing in this collaboration uh, with, with Uno Fest, which is a theater fest and with Pacific Opera. But I would like it to be, I would like it to be something that helps just in its own tiny way, expand the concept of, of what, how opera and, and the classical training that we have and our discipline as opera singers can be used in different ways, because it's not, it's not an opera. You know, it's, it's a theater show that is made by someone who's, who, whose biggest and most developed tool is, is classical voice, you know, but, but I'm, we're, we're trying to use that to tell a story in a different way that it, it that it couldn't be, to, it couldn't be told in the same way without the singing. You know, you couldn't just say the text and, and not ha and have the same experience. And if it was a different style of singing, it would be a different show as well, particularly because opera is so much about, about not in some ways being in control because you have to be in control. You can't be totally vulnerable as we were talking about in order to, in order to sing classically, but at the same time, going back and forth between like treading that line, I think is, is a very powerful thing. So I'd like to take it outside of, uh, out, outside of our idiom where people expect to hear opera and, and bring it into the world at large sort of. Sean, what's your vision for the piece? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think the show will constantly change and evolve and, and, and mutate in a way, I think also because your experience is going to keep changing. And, and I'll, one thing we haven't really talked about too is, is some of the impetus for the show about um, dealing with some of these emotions and some of these fears and how that was a blockade for you and your singing. Um, I, I think for me, I would love to see the show kind of, kind of, keep pushing and pushing that opera piece into more traditional theater settings or more, uh, I would love to see the show be able to do like a pride tour too, where, where we're kind of sharing this story and this art form with people who maybe, like, maybe don't often think that they are theater or opera fans, um, but that it's presented by a pride festival or a pride presenter that, that we're really able to kind of reach new people with this story and with number one with the story, but also with the art form. And I think that, that what this show does is, is blend theater and opera and music so well that I really want to share that with, with people who maybe don't think that they are necessarily opera or theater fans. But once they see this story, they can see themselves reflected and, and they'll, they'll, think, they'll think about what, why that was and what, what part of that was the story and what part of that was the presentation and the art form. How, yeah, do we, so, how do we see what you're presenting through Uno Fest? Yeah, so we're presenting the show uh, in a co-presentation with Intrepid Theater and Civic Opera Victoria as part of Uno Fest Online, uh, which is this new digital offering uh, of UNOFest online, which is our, our way of presenting at Intrepid Theater, the solo festival digitally. Um, so what you can experience as, as the Book of My Shame's offering is what we're calling it, is you, there will be um, two video pieces um, from the show, as well as Isaiah giving a bit of intro and, and backstory into those pieces. And then Isaiah and I will also be um, collaborating a, on Facebook Live. We're gonna do an artist talk which we're calling a digital happy half hour. And that will be on Friday, May 1st, uh, where we're gonna talk more about like this, where we're gonna talk about the creation and our collaboration and uh, what the show has evolved and, and what happened in Toronto and, and some more of these stories and, and how we uh, worked together and, uh, or maybe didn't work together on something. But uh, we're gonna share one of those things for free on, on Facebook on Friday, May 1st. I, mean, I think the thing is we don't really know when the show's going to be able to happen. So it's like, we're just going to keep working on it. 
uh, I mean, like Isaiah said, he's writing this new piece, this this piece just for this COVID pandemic so that we can, we can have something new to offer. And I think that's actually what's exciting about this show is we're able to still kind of collaborate and work on it for whenever that happens that we can do it in front of an audience and get together again. And we have some great ideas and great plans that we'll, we'll implement when that happens, but it's great to be able to still talk uh, and dream and uh, create. Sean is so right. It's a great time to be able to connect and continue to work creatively, even if it's at a distance. And it's also really wonderful that Pacific Opera is able to continue to support this work as it evolves through UNOFest and their streaming of solo performances, including The Book of My Shames. If you want to see this work, you can buy a one-week pass for UNOFest online or single-show ticket or on-demand viewing during the festival. Go to intrepidtheatre.com for more information. My thanks to both Isaiah Bell and Sean Guest for being my guests this week on the podcast. Next week, I'll be talking with three artists, Rachel Fenlin, singer and pianist, Kinza Terrell, collaborative pianist, and Doug McNaughton, opera singer and guitarist. All three of these artists are creating online content in surprising and creative ways. Each one of them is finding a virtual way to stay connected to colleagues, uh, to challenge themselves as artists, and they're all trying to get music out to you to keep your spirits lifted. As of May 1st, this podcast will move to a monthly offering. Pacific Opera will continue to respond and adjust to the ever-unfolding new reality of COVID-19, and we are excited to launch a suite of programs weekly throughout the month to keep us connected with you. Please check our website for details, www.pacificopera.ca. Until the next time, then, I'm Rebecca Haas, and thanks for listening.